Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 25 minutes to go before we get to 3 o'clock, and unfortunately 25 minutes will never be enough because I'm a massive fan of this man. I've been listening to him since I was listening to him talking to Reedy Clubby years, years ago. And uh, now I finally get to chat to him as well. Good afternoon to you, uh, Naked Scientist Chris Smith himself. How are you doing? Oh, I'm very good, thank you. And the, the pleasure and honour is mine too. So there we go. Oh, Mutual love stuff. fest. <laughs> no, indeed, indeed. First and foremost, I think the most obvious question, especially since we are living in the era of COVID-19 and uh, we're on a national lockdown, the big question that remains is, is COVID-19 actually airborne? And would you be able to give us a decent explanation of, of what it all means? Yeah, sure. The virus that causes this is called a coronavirus, and that's actually the name of the family. There are lots of members of this big family of coronaviruses, and they're called coronaviruses because corona in Latin means crown, virus means poison, and that's because when it gets into a cell, it effectively poisons the cell, hence viruses are called poisons. The corona bit comes from the fact that seen down a microscope, this thing resembles a spiky meatball. It's about 100 nanometers across, which is one ten thousandth of a millimeter. And it uses the spikes that stick out from the surface that give it its crown of thorns appearance and its name to cling on to cells in our noses, throats and chiefly also in the lungs. And when you are infected, it grows in cells in your airways. And then when it makes you cough or sneeze, because it also is associated with coughing, you spray out into the air around you a mist of tiny droplets of water from your airways, but crammed into those droplets are virus particles. And sometimes there are just viruses on their own that come out as well. And an infected person will be producing millions of virus particles, and they'll spray these tiny particles out into the air. And because they're so small, they bob around in the air for an extended period of time, as in for hours. And if you come along and breathe in some of these particles, if you get enough of them, then they land in your nose and throat, and there's a very high likelihood that they can set up another infection in you. So one very important route by which this virus spreads is through the air. But because these particles are airborne, eventually what goes up must come down. They will land on surfaces, and they don't immediately die on a surface. The virus particles remain viable, so if you come along and touch a surface, you can pick up some virus particles from the surface, and if they're on your fingers, they won't be harming you. But if you touch your eyes or you touch your nose or you touch your mouth, that's a route into your respiratory tract, and so the virus can get in and infect you that way. So the guidance is stay away from people who could infect you and when you touch surfaces and other things that other people may have touched so outside your house be really rigorous with your hand washing because then you won't pick up someone else's virus that they've left behind awesome awesome answer i have andrew from brianston on the line andrew your question short and sharp please yeah how's it just a just a question there for dr smith um on the mask issue regarding COVID 19 like uh, the general rhetoric that comes across is don't wear them uh, rather leave them for the medical professionals. 
Like, uh, is this sort of Western world message because masks are um, in short supply? Or is it because, in fact, wearing a mask is not effective by the general public? Like, like in, in a perfect world where there are unlimited supply of surgical masks or N95 masks, would the message rather not be wear masks and this is the proper way to dispose of them? Cool. You know, um, and Thanks. this is the proper way to wear them. Like, I mean, surely millions of Asians can't be wrong. Thank Thanks, you. Andrew. Hi, Andrew. The evidence that um, masks don't work very well is that you end up with millions of people in Asia wearing them every cold and flu season, proving they've all caught colds. So if they really work that well, they would see a much lower rate of transmission in those places than in other countries, and they don't. Masks like this don't work very well, to be honest with you. The reason they don't work very well if you're a person who's not infected is because they do not provide a good barrier against virus that you could breathe in. They don't provide a good barrier because they don't fit well to your face. They leave big gaps around the edges through which, when you take a deep breath in, air can go. They also, very quickly, with extended wear, get damp. And once you've got a damp mask, the virus particles, which are in droplets in the air, as we've just been saying, can go straight through the mask because cheap surgical masks and material masks have big gaps between the fibres. And on the scale of a virus that measures one ten-thousandth of a millimetre across, those gaps are like an ocean. So they go whizzing through and you breathe them in. And also, many people, when they put these things on their face, because it's uncomfortable doing this and you get itchy, they need adjustment, they need moving so you can eat mm. and drink, they encourage you to touch them a lot. And if you've touched surfaces and you have got virus on your skin, because it might make you feel complacent and more secure than if you're not wearing a mask, you're more likely to touch the mask with unwashed hands. You put virus onto the mask surface and then it goes through. So the evidence is, and we use exactly the same practice for our medical staff in the UK, when they're just dealing day-to-day with, with people or around, going around in, in public areas of the hospital, they don't wear them because they wouldn't confer any additional benefit. The exception to this is if you've got someone who's highly infectious with things like TB, for example, or you're moving a patient from one part of a hospital to another and they have got a streaming cold, you might put a surgical mask on them briefly because it will help to cut down for a short while some of the material that they might cough or sneeze out, but it won't produce long-term defences. The other exception is the kinds of masks that are used in hospitals to defend against things like this new coronavirus are properly fitted so-called FFP3 masks. These are very high stringency masks that are properly fitted to the face. They don't leave gaps around the edges, so they form a proper seal and they can filter down to particles that are smaller than the viruses are, so they will defend you. So, So it's not fair to say all masks are useless, but the kinds of masks sold to the public just by people who are probably trying to make a quick buck, they're just exploiting the public and they're not making the public any safer. Better better not to use them and just observe the normal social distancing guidance that the government are issuing because that will give you much more defence than trying to wear a surgical mask. Absolutely stunning. Um, Edna from Victory Park, good afternoon. Hello, good day. I'd like to ask if there is information that can compare the corona now with the foreign flu that we had in 2009, there are some doctors that say that it's not more difficult and not more dangerous, and the level of precautions is more hysteria. Do we have numbers that can look at it? Yes, we do. And thank you for asking this question. Okay, the answer to your question is as follows, that this virus, this new coronavirus, 
is about twice as infectious as flu. When I say twice as infectious, there is a function called the reproduction number, or R0. And this is a mathematical function, which is for every case of this virus, how many more cases does each case create? Put another way, how many people when I've got it do I give it to? For normal flu, that number's between one and two. So each person gives it to about one or two other people when they're infected. For this new coronavirus, the number is closer to three or even four. So it's possibly twice as infectious as the flu. So it spreads twice as well as flu. The next question to ask is, well, how likely is it to make you really ill? Well, with seasonal flu, like you get uh, every wintertime, the rate of uh, death that ensues or serious illness that ensues is down in sort of down in the 0.1% level, very, very low. Whereas for this new virus, this new coronavirus, it's at about 1%. So it's about 10 times more likely to make you lethally ill or kill you compared with the flu. And when you put those things together, we've got a new virus which is to which no one is immune, which spreads really well and can infect lots of people very quickly and is about 10 times more lethal for you than the flu. So that's why people are worried because it has the potential to cause much more ill health all at once compared to a normal dose of, of flu that comes in wintertime. I guess also added to that, um, with it being a new virus, I mean, is there a concern that uh, it mutates, that it grows, that it changes in such a way that it poses a greater risk than what it is at the moment? All viruses mutate and change, and this is always a concern. But people are keeping a close eye on this virus, and they've been doing so since it was first sequenced and first emerged in China, and they're tracking how it changes as we get samples that go from one person to the next all around the world. And what they're now finding is that there is certainly mutations cropping up. The virus is changing very slightly, but it's changing in such a subtle way that's not affecting the behaviour of the virus to any great degree. So we're reasonably comfortable that it's not going to change and weaponize all of a sudden and become much more virulent or spread even better than it already does. The threat largely comes from the fact that it's already very good at spreading in humans. It doesn't kill a very large number of humans, which means it can fly on under the radar because it's much harder to spot a case. It's not like Ebola where people become dramatic unwell very quickly and they're easy to spot there are people knocking around with this with very mild symptoms which means they can be spreading it and going about their business and that's part of its success story very interesting indeed let's go to masala and centurion that has an interesting question related to the question we got earlier on around the masks good afternoon masala hi uh good show first of all and awesome information from the naked scientists so my question is around latex gloves. I see a lot of people wearing latex gloves, and I heard from uh, UCB's show about a week ago where Dr. Eve's son apparently told her that uh, latex gloves are bad for viruses. They actually encourage the spread. Any input on that? Thanks, Masala. Hi, Masala. The answer to this is that I wouldn't bother with the gloves. This new coronavirus cannot infect you through the skin of your hands. So if you get the virus on your fingers, the worst thing you can do is to touch your mouth, touch your nose or touch your eyes because then you can transmit it into an area where it does want to go and where it can infect you. Having it on a pair of gloves, it may as well be on the, on the skin of your fingers as on the gloves. You can easily get rid of it 
by washing your hands. So the gloves don't actually help. I would not bother with them because they're more likely to cause you frustration and be a nuisance. Much better to just use soap and water to wash your hands and observe the other social distancing guidelines which are being issued. Don't go to crowded places, stay away from other people, avoid mass gatherings, uh, stay a, you know, a couple of metres away from people, take your exercise uh, on your own and just hang around with your family unit, not in uh, big groups of people who might be able to infect you. But it makes me think then, if I'm walking around with latex gloves, in in all likelihood, I'm not busy washing these latex gloves. I'm not getting them uh, treated with the hand sanitizer. Uh, there's a high probability that I'm actually spreading the virus from you know from one point to the next. Yeah, that's certainly a possibility. And also, we know the virus tends to persist for quite a long time on plastic and rubber surfaces. In fact, about three days, it's been proven you can recover virus that can go on to infect cells, so it remains viable and in an infectious state for 72 hours on some surfaces, including plastic. So th- th- those sorts of gloves could well collect lots of virus, and if people don't observe as good a hygiene because they think, well, I'm wearing gloves, I won't wash my hands as much, anything they touch, you're quite right, they could be putting down an infectious dose of virus there for someone else to pick up. Uh, Avin from Centurion has an interesting question about the nature of viruses. Avin? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for taking my call. So basically, I want to know, does the professor consider viruses to be alive or they are they something more like biological, chemical? Yeah, hi, Avin. And uh, this is a long-running debate, actually. And some people regard viruses as alive. Other people regard viruses as um an inanimate entity. Let's just explain what they are. These are really tiny things. They come in various shapes and sizes, but they're on the whole really small, as in this virus is one ten thousandth of a millimetre across. That makes it many, many times, hundred times smaller than a cell, for example. So it's so small, in fact, that it cannot contain in the virus any of the machinery or things it needs to make new viruses. It has to engage with penetrate and hijack one of our cells to do that because our cells contain the machinery to make more viruses and that machinery is bigger than the virus itself. So what's a virus? It's just an infectious bag of genetic information. It's just infectious genes if you like. And so that leads many people to conclude that really a virus isn't alive. It's just a biological entity that is the the ultimate biological parasite. And I think I agree with them. It's a basically an infectious molecule and it happens to, to have the right instructions in it to hijack one of our cells and make more of itself. But it certainly can't think, it doesn't make decisions, it doesn't follow cues in the same way that bacteria can. Bacteria can make decisions. They're obviously a living cell. Viruses are not like that and I, I think that they really can be considered just an infectious bag of molecules but they're not an alive living entity like I am. That is absolutely fascinating. Uh, let's go to Joe in the Western. End. Joe, how's it? Hi there. Good stuff, man. What's uh, on your mind? Thanks. I've got got one for the naked scientist. Um, I have an ozone machine that I sanitize motor cars with, and I was told that it kills all bacteria and viruses. Number one, is that true? And if it is, would the um, if I ozonate the water that I drink? And I put the my groceries that I buy um, in a box and put the ozone into it. Would that kill the the virus? Ozone is very oxidising and toxic to microorganisms. That's certainly true. And ozone is used under certain circumstances to purify water. It can also be used to purify the air in rooms. 
And so it certainly is a very good disinfectant. But what you have to be cautious of is that you should never say never in anything to do with medicine because under standard, well-controlled, well-planned out conditions, its use it can be used very effectively. But just blowing some ozone from an ozone-creating machine into a box of groceries, you don't actually know whether all of the uh, contents of the box are being equally exposed to the ozone. You haven't done experiments to see whether there are any, any flat spots in the box where the ozone doesn't penetrate to. You don't know how much ozone you need. You don't know how long you need to do it for because you haven't done the experiment to obviously swab things and see how, how long it takes to deactivate microbes that are, that are in your fruits and vegetables, for example. So it's not something you can rely on and say, if I do this, this will be fine because you don't have the data to support it. So it, it's certainly true that ozone has a place and it can be useful under certain circumstances as a disinfecting molecule it's also very toxic so you should be careful about that it's very good when it's up in the sky and it's defending us from ultraviolet but when it gets down to ground level it can cause photochemical smog and it can irritate your airways and it's toxic so be very careful what you do with it but don't rely on that to defend you against something in when you use it in a non-standardized way that hasn't been tried and tested because that's how accidents happen uh, I find that actually quite interesting because um, there was a period where this ozone, these ozone uh, products became very, very popular. And, you know, whether it was you pouring ozone into your water or into whatever, um, it seemed to be a very popular thing. I didn't know that it was uh, even used for, for purifying air, so to speak. There's an interesting one. Just a quick uh, break from uh, COVID-19 related questions. Chris here. Not Chris, Wesley rather, um, uh, from Pretoria asked a question, how does menthol and eucalyptus clear our airways and give a burning sensation and how does it differ to a chilly burn? Oh, hi, Wesley. The answer to this is it, it is quite similar to the mechanism that chili produces a burning effect. When you suck a, a mint that's got menthol, you'll notice that your mouth feels cold. But if you stick a thermometer into your mouth and test the temperature, it hasn't changed. Similarly, if you chew on a chilli, it feels like enormous, intense heat in your mouth. But if you stick a thermometer in there, your temperature hasn't changed. So what these, these two sort of food entities are doing is fooling your nervous system into thinking it's hotter or thinking it's colder than it really is. And we do actually understand the chemistry of this. There are receptors or chemical docking stations on the nerve fibres in your mouth that detect hot and cold. And on the fibres that detect how cold it is, there is a receptor called TRP-TRP-M8. And when you stick menthol onto that nerve, that receptor docks with the menthol and it makes it more sen- makes the nerve more sensitive to temperature at any given temperature. So when you take a breath of cool air in, your nerve system now thinks, because the menthol is activating the nerves a bit more than they would be normally, that the air you're breathing in is even colder than it really is. Conversely, when you eat chilli, there's a chemical in chilli called capsaicin, and this docks with a receptor called TRP-TRP-V1, and when it goes on to that, it makes the nerve fibres more sensitive to heat at any given temperature. So the natural warmth of your mouth makes the nerve fibre think it's a lot hotter than it really is, and you experience excruciating burning sensations, but actually there's no change in temperature and no tissue damage is occurring. Now, the way in which it has an effect on clearing your passages is probably partly it gives you relief because it makes you uh, it, it makes you make more saliva, so you wash 
nice saliva back over your throat which might be a bit sore and that lubricates everything and makes things feel more comfortable and the clearing your passages some of these agents can also cause blood vessels to constrict a bit temporarily and if you do that it causes the swelling to go down because when you have infection in your airways it causes swelling and the swelling then clogs the airways up and makes you feel stuffed up and everyone thinks it's lots of snot up there and mucus there is snot and mucus up there but it's also the airways are all puffed up and inflamed so the tubes get narrower so you've got both mucus Mm. there and narrowed tubes so everything feels more clogged up and if you bring the swelling down a bit everything opens up and you can breathe more easily. Flora from Mabopane. Uh, good afternoon. Hi. I just want to find out if there's any information pertaining to the impact of this virus in pregnancy. Okay, what Flora wanted to know, does this virus have any specific impact on, on pregnant women? Hello, Flora. Well, first let me reassure you that there have been people who have been pregnant when they've caught this virus and they've been absolutely fine. And it looks like there is no additional risk on a woman's health over and above the risk that she has for someone of her age who's in all other respects the same and not pregnant. So pregnancy in and of itself doesn't appear to be a big risk factor and the virus doesn't appear to be able to go through the bloodstream and across the placenta, which is the connection between the mum's blood and the baby's blood. So the baby is effectively protected, cocooned inside mum and therefore won't catch the virus when it's inside mum so there's no risk of developmental abnormalities for the baby. The UK... Uh, chief scientist and chief medical officer, though, have said that they want to, pregnant women to regard themselves as a higher risk. And I think they've done that because, A, we're always cautious where pregnancy is concerned, so you take no risks and encourage people to distance themselves so they don't catch the virus, just in case. There's always, with any kind of virus infection, a small increase in risk during the first trimester of pregnancy, the first 12 weeks. Any kind of infection, any kind of infectious disease that causes high fevers and things can have a small increase in adverse outcomes for pregnancy, so we try and avoid that anyway. And also, because maternity services are already under pressure in in many countries, by encouraging pregnant women not to to, uh, or, or distance themselves to actively try to avoid catching this, that way we won't have as high a likelihood of having outbreaks in hospitals when women go into hospital to have their babies. Because what no one wants when they're trying to have a baby or or have just given birth is to then have to deal with uh, a newborn baby and coronavirus infection into the bargain. So we're trying to safeguard the service by preventing women from catching it in the first place. But on the whole, pregnancy, you shouldn't worry too much um, beyond what the normal risk for your age here. Well, Naked Scientist, Chris Smith, it is as wonderful as I imagined it would be. Thank you so much for your time. All the best to you. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for doing such a wonderful job. And it was great fun. And thanks for the great questions, everyone. Awesome.